Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Hi there. Uh, my name is Daniel Moberg. I'm the Leadership Programs Manager at the National LGBTQ Task Force, and my pronouns are he, him, his. And I'm Alex Morash. I'm the Media and PR Director for the National LGBTQ Task Force, and I use the he, him pronouns. And today, we're going to be discussing the National LGBTQ Task Force's Creating Change Conference. Could you tell us what the Creating Change Conference is? So the Creating Change Conference is really the preeminent national level movement convening for LGBTQ folks and allies. Uh, This year is our 30th anniversary. We began in Washington, D.C. in 1988 uh, with just over 300 people attending. And here we find ourselves again um, in D.C. for the 30th anniversary. We expect upwards of 4,000 folks to attend our conference this year. So over the last 30 years, it has really, really grown to become um, a hallmark of movement convening space uh, across the country. Um, Folks recognize the conference from all parts of LGBT movement work. And we have a a really wide swath of folks who come to join us across a wide range of both professional and personal experience. As you said, this has been around for a long time. How has it developed over time? Well, I think that one of the things that we would say about creating change and and in in the spirit of transparency, I have personally been working on the conference for um, almost three years now. Um, And so many of my predecessors and current colleagues would say that the conference has has been and continues to be a space for activists and allies to really build connection and relationship with one another. And and I think that one of the particular ways in which the conference has changed or grown or evolved over time is simply the the sheer volume of folks uh, who come to attend the conference, who come to learn together, uh, who come to to share their experiences and share their stories. And and really, the conference has positioned itself to be responsive each year to what is happening currently in sort of our our social political context out in the world, um, where we do our best to have that sort of sense of connection and history for folks who have been to the conference for 30 years or folks who have been to the conference for five years or one year, but also that we remain nimble and and responsive to making sure that the conference is relevant to what's going on currently. And, you know, to go with what Daniel was saying, one of the things that's so interesting about this year to keep it relevant is this is a year where one of our main themes is to resist because now the conference is going to be happening on January 24th just four days after Trump's first year in office. And for a lot of the activists there, we really want to be discussing ways that we can resist the way this administration's been um, attacking the LGBT community, you know, from the Human Rights Campaign to the National LGBT Task Force to even the log cabin Republicans have all referred to Trump as the worst, the most anti-LGBT president in uh, US modern history. And it's really important that we're able to have activists come and sit down and talk about these things in a, a place like creating change. We have so many wonderful workshops uh, dealing with ways to do small town activism to campaigns to communications and it allows everyone to really get an idea of how we can move forward when it comes to resisting this presidency. Could you elaborate on why exactly Trump is the most anti-LGBTQ president in modern United States history? Yes. Some of the things that Trump has done in his first year alone has included obviously the transgender military ban but also also um, in education, uh, taking away protections for transgender students, as well as also having a very aggressive anti-healthcare agenda, including attempting to reduce the Ryan White 
HIV funding by over $50 million in his proposed budget, as well as also trying to cut funding at the CDC for STI prevention, along with also the latest issue many have heard with the CDC is the uh, attempt to ban seven words, including the word transgender. It shouldn't be used in any potential budgetary things. We haven't seen a president act so openly hostile to, toward the LGBT community in at least recent years. Even presidents in the last 20 to 30 years that have done anti-LGBT activities like George W. Bush, who would push for federal marriage amendment ban, he was pushing for some very terrible things, but we didn't see quite the same level of animosity as the attempts from Trump in his first year so far. So to give a more comprehensive view, Trump obviously isn't doing this all on his own. How exactly did we get here? The historical context for where we've gone to with the Trump presidency on how it treats the LGBTQ people along with how he's been treating country as a whole is very much within the realm of misinformation, I think, is one of the biggest things. You look at the president since he first started running for office, you see a presidency that has had no regards for facts and for truth, and that goes beyond any one political party. You know, the way that our system can only work is if we have a system that encourages truth and making sure that facts matter. And when we see a president who would claim that he was pro-LGBTQ and then attempt to ban transgender people from the military and then also try to attack trans students and to also try and cut HIV AIDS funding, you're seeing someone who thinks that he, they can get away with, with not using actual facts and trying to use a sleight of hand. And that's something that's come out from years and years of media. You know, you look at the first major institution of pushing sort of fake news as we see it, you know, started with Fox News in the 1990s. So this is a, at least a, a 20 to 30 year problem that we've seen develop. So what is the conference hoping to do to combat this? First, I'll say that there are a, a handful of sessions and um, trainings happening at this year's conference that really do focus on and engage in the broader, larger idea of democracy and engagement in our democracy and folks being really catalyzed around these particular issues in the wake of our current administration. So we have some elected officials who are coming to present in some workshops, and uh, they're certainly one of the conference's top eight focus areas this year. While we've had focus areas um, in the last couple of years, uh, one of our priorities this year is, of course, to, to really be in conversation with our attendees about democracy and civic engagement. But beyond the sort of uh, specific nature of that as it relates to our current administration, I would encourage folks to consider that the conference has been around for 30 years and will continue to pursue its mission for change beyond the current administration. So while, of course, it is important to prioritize focusing a lot of the work on combating the negative treatment and anti-LGBTQ legislation and efforts uh, that are happening legislatively, that is important to maintain a focus on a larger, broader vision for our movement. And as the conference plugs into that over the next several years beyond the current administration, that's really going to remain a focus. 
Yeah, and, you know, to uh, go with, with what Daniel is saying about what the conference is doing, remember, we're also spending an entire day on Capitol Hill with over 500 activists doing a lobby day to talk about different legislation, including how we need to pass the Equality Act, because still in almost half the um, population of this country lives in areas that still do not have full LGBTQ uh, protections. And in fact, a few different programs that we're doing is we're even doing um Congressman Mark Takano is doing a wonderful workshop called The Resistance Starts in the Swamp, looking at inequality going on in marginalized communities and how we can get involved in active participation in democracy, looking at ways we can challenge uh, Trump in the courts. The ACLU has been kind enough to do a workshop with us that'll be called literally challenging Trump's white supremacist policies in the courts. So remember, one wonderful thing about creating change is we are an LGBTQ conference, but we are we don't just look at LGBTQ specific issues by itself. We also look at racism, sexism, with homophobia and transphobia, and income inequality, and how all these different issues intersect in how it harms our society and is pushing so many in our community down, and how we need policies to raise people up. I'm glad you mentioned how most folks actually aren't living in states that have full LGBTQ equality, because it's a very common misconception that on a federal level, there are full comprehensive protections for LGBTQ Americans. Could you give us a little more detail on where we are in legislation on a federal, state, and municipal level across the country? For where we are at the federal level, we have a a White House, a House, and a Senate that are run by a party that does not support passing legislation to support the LGBTQ community right now, in all, all frankness. So we are going to be lobbying in the hopes to see if we can persuade uh, members of both parties to move on that. But I'm not sure if we'll be able to see change coming at the congressional level without seeing changes in who is in control of both houses along with who's in control of the White House. That, that's something that'll be remain to be seen. One thing that people don't understand is not only do we not have non-discrimination policies in most states, but LGBT people still face higher levels of income inequality and higher levels of poverty than uh, their heterosexual counterparts. Uh, for instance, almost one out of every five LGBT single adults uh, lives off less than $12,000 a year. And even LGBT families with children, uh, they can have be up to three times more likely to be in poverty than their heterosexual counterparts. And in fact, we'll be releasing a poverty report at Creating Change at one of our economic justice workshops. And we'll be announcing the details of that at, during Creating Change. But just so you know, only 44% of the LGBT population in America lives in a state with full LGBTQ protections. What is that difference between full protection? That means both gender identity and sexual orientation policies. So, of course, you've, you've talked about the Equality Act and the necessity of these full protections, but what, what exactly do these look like? In order to address the policies affecting the LGBTQ community, especially in issues of poverty, you have to have a whole encompassing progressive agenda. The task force works on uh, 10 major policy areas uh, because of how it affects 
the entire LGBT community. You know, one of the issues that we work on is reproductive justice, specifically because LGBTQ women of color, especially, face very specific issues when it comes to uh, reproductive choice and having access to health care. You know, and also many people don't even realize when we talk about health care uh, how much that affects the LGBT community more than other communities. You know, the Washington Blade did a great piece at the start of last year about how 8% of the overall population uh, in America uses Medicaid, uh, which is a healthcare for low-income Americans, whereas almost double that of the LGBTQ population needs access to Medicaid. So when you we talk about LGBTQ policies, we're talking about policies that are obviously including LGBT non-discrimination laws, but also include economic and healthcare policies that help the entire community. And also another issue that we, we have in co- uh, workshops in the conference about is uh, these concepts of religious liberty laws that would give uh, businesses the right to discriminate against LGBT patrons and, and even in some cases possibly LGBT workers. You know, the Supreme Court just this week refused to hear a case about the Mississippi religious freedom law, which um, the Human Rights Campaign referred to as the most anti-LGBTQ law in the United States because it gives such sweeping new powers to people to say, you know, my religious beliefs say that I don't have to provide services to to people based on their sexual orientation. And this creates a whole host of new public policy problems, because if you're having trouble getting access to health care and the only doctor in your area said they're not going to treat LGBTQ people, well, now we have both the problem of the religious liberty issue of being denied the service, but then also now they have no doctor within a large radius for them possibly to see treatment. So all these different issues intersect, which is why we need full progressive policy. So as you said, there are a lot of intersecting issues here. LGBTQ advocacy intersects with racial justice, women's rights, etc. Could you tell us more about what the conference is doing to reflect and embrace this intersectionality? Thanks, Jordan. That's a great question. I think that the conference does a pretty fantastic job and has historically done a pretty fantastic job of um, reflecting this intersectionality in the breadth of our programming. We begin the conference with two days of day-long institutes. So the conference itself kicks off on Thursday evening, but first on Wednesday, we have the all-day-long Racial Justice Institute, and some version of the Racial Justice Institute has uh, taken place at the conference since the early 90s. And the Racial Justice Institute, as a specific example, is a place where LGBTQ folks and allies come together to really do a deeper dive into issues of race, racism, and racial justice. And we spend a whole day together exploring personal experiences of race and racism, as well as having opportunities for folks to really explore ways to incorporate anti-racist practice and really building that perspective into their own work in their own home communities. So as as an example, the Racial Justice Institute is one of the ways that I believe the conference ensures that race, racism, and racial justice is a a priority component of overall conference programming. In addition, there are are many, many tracks of workshops at the at the conference that span every topic area from aging and ageism and LGBTQ elders 
to uh, to youth um, and everything in between, including, as I mentioned previously, democracy and civic engagement, HIV. There's a whole track of workshops uh, dedicated to folks of color, racial justice, as I mentioned, reproductive justice, nonprofit management and, and fundraising, health and wellness and healing. I do believe that conference programming overall is in and of itself a reflection of the intersectional approach that you speak of. Who are some of the speakers and what are some of the programs that are really prominent at the conference? This might be um, a, a good opportunity to mention that, for example, we have over the course of the conference several different plenary sessions, beginning first with the Thursday evening opening plenary. And this year's keynote is being titled Activism in a Time of Tyranny. And our featured speakers at our opening plenary that evening, one of them being our colleague here at the task force, Victoria Kirby York, who is the deputy director of our advocacy and action department at the task force. The the panel also features uh, Farhana Kara, who is the president and first executive director of Muslim Advocates. We also have on that particular opening plenary, Andrea Jenkins, who is the first black trans woman to be elected to office as she is on now on the city council of Minneapolis, having just won her election in November. Also, we have Irva Shived, who is the CEO of the Vade Group, who is also the former executive director and media director and policy institute director at the task force. In addition, and finally, for the Thursday opening plenary, uh, we are featuring our, our moderator for the discussion, Diego Miguel Sanchez, who is the director of advocacy, policy and partnerships at PFLAG National. I believe uh, Diego is also the first openly trans person to work in Congress. We also have a a few other program things. Friday, we're going to see the State of the Movement address, which this time is going to be done by both our executive director and our new deputy executive director, Kara Johnson, who just started this month. And then on Saturday, we're going to have an activist mobilization and dance party. And then we're going to be having the closing plenary and brunch with Lex Allen, which I think Daniel knows even more about that than me. Sure. So um, we close the conference on Sunday afternoon with a plenary brunch. And this year's featured performer is Lex Allen, who uh, might be known for their uh, um, gender-bending music video and their single Cream and Sugar. Um, And we're hoping that folks enjoy Lex's performance and that this is a way for our attendees to really have a moment at the end of the conference where we're really enjoying ourselves together and um, having a good time celebrating the previous three days. What personally for you is the most exciting part of this conference? I really echo what many folks at the task force and beyond reflect about the conference, which is that it really does feel like a family reunion every year for many people who attend. As I mentioned previously, we have folks who have attended Creating Change since its inception in 1988, and many folks for whom this will be their first conference and everyone in between. Especially for folks who've been coming for many, many years, it indeed does feel like a family reunion. No matter how many years you've come to Creating Change, it really does feel like a reunion, a gathering of folks who love and care for one another and who really 
are there because we're committed to collective learning and advancement and justice, and that the conference really does provide the space for that deep sense of connection. Um, so for me, I would say that that is one of the most exciting parts for me is just is just really bumping into folks in the hallways and in the elevators and running back and forth between or moving back and forth between sessions um, and just really kind of even even the simple interactions of, of catching someone's eye in the hallway in between sessions, someone you connected with four years ago and and you've and you've managed to stay in touch with this person and, and really sometimes the conference is the only time every year that you get to see that person but you really do feel like uh, no time has passed and um, and that the conference is really that space for those relationships to be fostered and you know for me well, the thing that I just love about creating change is all the amazing workshops we have you know I, I look through them and we have I think that over 300 different workshops this year and for those that are interested in seeing all of them you know we, we have a online pamphlet at creatingchange.org we can see them but it's just wonderful to be able to go to learn about all the different ways people are mobilizing what are the new issues that are surrounding our community to learn about and explore and just really work with the rest of the lgbtq community on all the the issues that that affect us and learn from each other so again, I'll just offer that uh, the website is simply www.creatingchange.org and that folks can find the complete uh, conference program in PDF form on the website as of today. So we absolutely do encourage and invite folks to, to take a look. It is a beautiful piece of work, a labor of love every year, and uh, the program book really does hold um, tons of great and essential information that helps orient folks to their experience at the conference. Okay, great. Well, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered? One of the things I'll say is that we, I think we really are seeing now that in particular the conference is, you know, here we are, we're in a conversation and, 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 and you help guide discussion around this idea of millennial politics, right? And of course, the conference brings together folks across generations um, every year. Our audience at the conference uh, has really become a space for, for younger folks to, to gather and convene and, and be in community with one another. Um, so we are really excited to be in D.C. We're really excited for young folks and all folks to come join us and be with us in, in their learning and in their journey at the conference. And we're really excited to see folks in just a couple weeks. So lastly, where can folks find both of you online? You can find us and learn more about the work we do on Twitter at The Task Force, or you can find me on Twitter at Alex Morash. The Task Force is also on Facebook as well. Uh, once again, The Task Force and our website, thetaskforce.org. I'm sure folks are welcome to, to look me up on Facebook. Folks are welcome to connect. Okay, great. Well, thank you both for coming on to the podcast and telling us about this conference and the work you do and why it matters. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it, too. Okay. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.